Excellent. All right, well, good morning, New Valley. How are you doing this morning? I'll try again. Come on, you guys can do better than that. How are you doing this morning, New Valley? Good. Good. You're in air conditioning. I mean, let that settle in a little bit. Um, Today is the fifth Sunday of the month, and so I want to take a moment to welcome our younger kids that are joining us for this service. It's really awesome to have you guys with us, and I want you to know that we are a church body, and kids, I want you to hear me say this, you guys are a part of this church, okay? When we talk about a church, we're not talking about a, a building or a structure, we're talking about the people that Jesus has called to himself, and, and that includes you. And so it's so good to have you with us this morning, and I see many of you here, and kids, I want to give you an idea for the sermon today. Uh, when I was your age, I loved to draw during, during church. And some people would look, and I know they'd be like, is Josh even listening, you know? But I don't know how you are. You might not be this way, but I noticed that when I would draw, I would actually listen better. Funny, right? And so I want you kids, if this helps you, I want to give you an idea on something to draw while I preach the sermon, okay? If it helps you to listen. And adults, you can do this too. Mom and dad, feel free to draw, do whatever. Um, But kids, if you'd like, I want you to draw a picture, and then maybe after service, if you've done this, I want you to come show me. I'd love to see some of your pictures. But draw a picture of of Jesus with like a group of people, and Jesus calling someone, telling someone to come and follow him, okay? Like calling someone saying, "I I want you to be one of my disciples. I want you to follow me, all right? So if you want to do that, kids, you can, you can do that. Well, once again, my name's Josh Harp, um, one of the pastors here on staff. It's a privilege to be able to preach this morning. We are in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're taking a couple steps back, covering some ground that I think we had hopped over a few weeks ago, Mark 2. And so if you would, grab your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 13 to 17, and you can follow along in your text. Mark chapter 2 starting in verse 13. It says this, He went out again beside the sea, he meaning Jesus, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. So our passage for today that we're going to be zooming in on, um, there's, there's actually quite a lot happening in this passage. And I want us as a congregation to be able to maybe take it in um, in the ways that are faithful to our time that we have together. And so in order to do that, I kind of want to set the scene a little bit for us. When we think about this moment in history, um, I think it's important for us to realize some things. So, so the first thing I think we need to discuss and talk about is what was it like to be a Jew during the first century? 
a faithful Jew during the first century. The Jews of this time, um, they lived with this expectation of a Messiah. This was what the scriptures, the Torah, pointed them towards, this hope and this expectation. One of our Psalms that I believe we read uh, for the assurance contained some of this language of hope in the Lord, that the Lord was going to come and, and do something. And so the Jews, they lived with this expectation in their life. They knew that his arrival would be soon, really any time. When they thought about the Messiah, they had in mind someone who would come with great power and vanquish and conquer and destroy their enemies, right? This is, this is kind of the way they thought about it. They pulled from imagery, like if you remember in Daniel 7, this picture of the king sitting on his throne and enemies being vanquished. This is, this is what they reminded themselves of as, as devout Jewish people. But during this time, as many of you know, in world history, this part of the world was dominated by the Roman Empire, which was a massive, massive empire. And the Jews, obviously in these areas of Palestine, were no exception to this. The Roman Empire dominated the landscape, and, and these Jews, they, they kind of were sitting under this oppression in their life. They sat under the powerful hand of Rome. And I like how um, author and teacher Mike Goheen, he, he talks about this and he, he kind of illustrates what this was like for them by sharing a, a little uh, illustrative story of imagine a young boy who goes to school and who's being picked on by a bully. And this, this bully takes this young boy and he's putting him down on the ground and he's smashing his face into the mud and the dirt. And this young boy, is, he's, his face is getting smashed down and he's looking up at this bully. This young boy goes, just wait till my big brother comes. This is, this is a really good picture for us when we think about the heavy hand of Rome and the Jewish people looking at this and they're saying, wait till Messiah comes. He's going to vindicate us. He is going to vanquish you. This is, this is what they were living with. This is the tension they were living with. And their goal during this time was, as the Jewish people, was to keep themselves pure and clean and ready for the day of the Lord. This is what they were doing. This explains so much of how they lived. You think about the law that they were trying to keep and how they developed all these other regulations so that they wouldn't violate the Torah. They wouldn't violate the law that God had given them. And what we're going to discover in this story is that in many ways, in their, in their good efforts to be faithful and upright, they actually lost sight of God's mission in the world. And they lost sight of their place in his mission. And they needed Christ to remind them and to show them God's mission again. So there's two points today that are going to kind of follow the trajectory of the passage the first point is this, the Messiah calls sinners. The second is that the Messiah eats with sinners. Pretty straightforward. I'm doing it like Mark does it. Mark just comes right out of the gate with his gospel going, this is who Jesus is. I'm just giving you the two points right up front, right? So first of all, the Messiah calls sinners. Now, let's dig into this a little bit. Verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now, I don't know if you've been in a, in a place where you've seen like a celebrity or a famous person and like before they were spotted by the crowd, you, you got to see like the way a crowd would form around them. Some of you have maybe in a situation, maybe like 
in your travels, or maybe, I don't know, you went out to California or Hollywood, you saw somebody, and then all of a sudden, more people recognized them. Um, some years ago, I was on staff at a church, and it was a Christmas Eve service, and we're sitting there, kind of, I, I was greeting, kind of getting ready for the service, and we noticed this guy who came through the door, a, a quite famous actor that came through the door. I'm not going to tell you who he was, but if you really want to know, just come up after service, and I'll tell you. But he comes in, and we greeted him and recognized who he was, and uh, he was with his grandmother. And as a staff, we're just kind of like, let's just, you know, obviously not make a big deal about this. He's wanting to attend the service. They kind of sat in the back. He kind of, you know, his posture was kind of slumped down and low. You could tell he didn't want people to, to, to notice him there. Well, after the service, I was kind of paying attention, and I watched, and he got up with his grandmother, and they walked out into the, into the lobby, and they were exiting, and I saw, and as they were exiting, I saw one person from our congregation kind of go over to him and be like, you know, like, hey, are you, you know, and I, you could just tell the conversation. And he's like, yeah, you know, and he kind of enters into this, he engages with them real graciously, and then all of a sudden, somebody else comes over, then a couple more people, and then people are just coming up because they're going, there's a crowd of people over there. What's going on, you know? And they come over, and, and pretty soon this crowd had formed around this, this, this poor guy. And I imagine it's kind of like that for Jesus. You've got this, this Jewish guy who, my goodness, he, he comes in, and he, he, he declares that he's able to forgive sins, and he heals a, a paralytic man. And this guy gets up and walks, Right? And Jesus is going about his, his business, and we see this crowd form around him. And what does Jesus do with this crowd? He, he teaches them. He teaches them about him, himself and the kingdom. And so this is exactly what he's doing at the beginning of this passage. It says, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, pause for a second. It's going to be easy for you in your mind right now to go, oh, another call kind of narrative, right? We've seen this already. Jesus went and called the fisherman. Now he's calling this guy. This is very different than the previous story that we heard of Jesus calling these fishermen to come follow him. Let's, let's see why. This person Jesus called in this story, this man named Levi, who many scholars believe is Matthew, this man is a tax collector. Now, some of you know all about what it meant to be a tax collector, but I'm, I'm just going to share again to remind us and to inform some of us what this meant in this day. This, this was not a good position for someone to be in. In first, the first century in Palestine, in this area, this was not a good thing for a Jewish person to enter into. Um, the Roman system of collecting taxes, it, it depended almost entirely on greed, uh, the people that were employed to do this tax collecting, they would, the way they made money is they would collect the taxes that were required, plus they would collect anything else that they could get, and they would keep that for themselves. That was the way that they made money, was actually by taking from the livelihood of, of many of their fellow Jewish neighbors, friends, family even. And so this is what a tax collector was. Look at how William Lane kind of describes this profession. He says, when a Jew entered the custom service, toll collecting or tax collecting, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. And in the eyes of the community, his disgrace extended to 
even his family. If you're related to a tax collector, you're going to feel the stain of that on you. Even further, connection with these tax collectors was forbidden. Um, Jews even, this is, this is kind of wild, but Jews wouldn't receive money from these tax collectors. So if you were a, a poor Jew and you were, you were begging for alms, if you saw a tax collector come and offer you money, out of the principle of you being a, a devout Jew, you would refuse that money because that was stolen money. That was money that was gained through robbery and thievery. Just imagine that. You wouldn't even receive alms from, from a tax collector. Levi would have been a very despised figure in that day. I was, I was trying to think of kind of relating it to us, and I, I thought of a few examples that may help some of us connect with, with Levi. Levi is the teammate. He's the teammate who betrays your team by switching over to your rival team and then he plays dirty every single time your two teams play together. And he even catches your eye when he does it, right? That's Levi. How about this? Levi's the coworker who leaves your small company for this large and oppressive competitor. And he, you can't prove this, but you know that he's trading your company's secrets so that this large company can get further and further ahead. Meanwhile, your company is getting pressed down press down, press down. Levi's the childhood friend. Some of you may have had this happen. Levi's the childhood friend who calls you out of the blue and says, I've got this great investment opportunity for you, right? But then you come to find out that the whole thing was a scam and your money is gone. But even worse than that, you've, you've had a friend betray you. This is Levi like a con man, like a very pragmatic sort of, I do what I can to get ahead sort of a guy. In this day, he was a symbol of the unclean nature of the unclean Jews of that time. He was like a, a figurehead. A tax collector would have been a figurehead for that. He was a symbol of betrayal. He was a symbol of self-centered pragmatism. You would not have liked Levi, okay? You would not have liked Levi. You wouldn't have looked at him and thought, oh, I can trust him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, place my confidence in this guy. That would not have been the guy you would have done that with. He was a tax collector and was highly despised. Now, let's, let's press into this even a little deeper. And I love... Um, ben Witherington, he says this. He says, if Levi was a tax collector, which the text says he was, in Capernaum, in this area, then fish were indeed one of the commodities regularly taxed in the region. In that case, he was probably already well-known and despised by Simon and Andrew, Jacob and John. So now let me paint this picture for you, Okay. You are one of the first four disciples that Jesus has called. You're one of those fishermen that Jesus has looked at and said, follow me. And you're following this guy. And, and you don't have all the pieces of who Jesus is figured out. You're, you're, you're leaning into the conversation. You're, you're really wanting to know, this guy's intriguing. Like, look at the things that he says. Look, the, look at the things that he does. And on this particular day, you're walking with him. And there's this crowd that's pressing in around you as you're walking and you walk by this tax booth, 
And you, a, a Jew of the first century, you have all the kind of the constructs of what I just said in your mind. You see this tax booth, and you look at this tax booth, and you look inside, you notice this man, the, the scum of the earth in your thinking. You see him there, and you have all these thoughts and emotion come swelling to your mind when you see this guy. And you even try to catch eyes with him so he can see you and your disdain for what he's doing and what he's doing to your people and what he's doing in the face of your faith and your religious practices. And you're one of Jesus' disciples. You're walking there and you, you lock eyes with him. And then all of a sudden, you're caught off guard because Jesus, the very one whom you're following, who told you, maybe just days before, said, come, follow me. What does Jesus do? But he turns his posture towards this tax booth and he looks at Levi and he uses the same words that he used to call you. And he says to Levi, follow me. (laughs) Follow me. And step into the shoes of those disciples for a moment. Feel what that would have felt like to them. I was thinking about that this week, and I thought about, this is going to sound really weird at first, but it'll make sense in the end, I promise. I thought about the movie Toy Story, right? And kids, you you guys are going to get this. So I know they have a new one that just came out, right? Toy Story 4. Anybody seen that one yet? Anybody? All right, a number of people. Awesome. Don't say anything about it. I haven't seen it yet. I don't want any spoilers, all right? No spoilers. But you guys remember the first Toy Story. It came out like way in ancient times, like in the late 90s, right? The first Toy Story came out, and I remember the first time I saw that movie in the theater, um, and it, it was just, it was really breathtaking for the time, and the animation was incredible. But this story is largely seen through the eyes of this toy named Woody, who's a cowboy doll, right? And he is like the... the treasured toy of a kid named who, kids? Andy, that's right. And kids, do you remember, how did Andy, how did he mark Woody as his toy? What did he do to Woody to say, this is my toy? You know? He wrote his name under his cowboy boot. He wrote Andy in big, bold letters, right? Andy was saying, this is my toy. And Woody would walk around. He, he, know, he knew this. He knew he was Andy's toy. And he's, he would see his name there, and it would reinforce this idea that I'm Andy's toy. And then what happens? Along comes this space ranger, right? Whose name is? Buzz, Buzz Lightyear. And does Woody like Buzz right away? No. No, he doesn't. And there's this, there's this scene that's really powerful in the, in the beginning of the first movie where Woody is watching Buzz as Buzz is with these other toys that Woody knows, and he's mingling with them. Woody's watching him, and Buzz is going, yeah, this and that and this and that, and then he goes, and because and, Buzz is still kind of delusional, he thinks he's an actual space ranger, but he's really a toy, you know? And he goes, yeah, and your leader, Andy, inscribed his name on me, right? And then he does what? He pulls up his boot, and he looks, and what's written on his boot? His space boot. Andy. And Woody sees this, and you can just tell that Woody is filled with jealousy. How could this space ranger, who doesn't even know he's a toy, 
now be one of Andy's treasured toys. I was thinking about this, that this week. I was thinking about Jesus' disciples, seeing Levi being called, follow, follow me. And what they must have felt, these fishermen, who they knew they weren't qualified to be a disciple of a rabbi. It wasn't as though these fishermen were going, you know, when is a rabbi going to come along and call me in? Or when can I come? They were not thinking that. They weren't qualified for that. But at least they were honest trade fishermen. They weren't tax collectors. And now Jesus comes and he calls Levi to himself. And he shows them that the Messiah calls sinners to himself. And they discover in a sobering way that they are far more like Levi than they realized. And you and I today are the same. Far more like Levi than we realize. We find comfort in knowing that Jesus calls sinners to himself, not based on any foreseen works, good works that we've done, right? But because of his grace, because of his sovereign will, he has called us. But what about when he calls despicable people to himself? What about when he calls those that we don't like to himself? We need to remind ourselves of this, that we don't call ourselves to God but God calls us to him. We sang of this earlier. And of course, this, uh, this song that just resonates so deeply with the call of the gospel, this amazing grace that's come to us, that Jesus calls sinners like you and me to himself. The Messiah calls sinners. This is the first thing. Number two, though, is that the Messiah eats with sinners. So look at this, in verse 15, it says, As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now when you see this phrase, reclined at, at table, it's important for you to know this, uh, this is not kind of a trivial meal or a happenstance sort of a thing. This is, this is not Jesus and his disciples and the crowd going like, it's dinner time. Let's stop by Chick-fil-A and grab something to eat. Like this, this is much more significant than that. Reclining at table was actually, it was a part of something called table fellowship uh, in this Greco-Roman society. And it was actually a kind of a non-verbal social communication piece. So if you reclined at table with somebody, that communicated deep friendship, it communicated intimacy, it communicated even a degree of unity, right? You were, you, were, you were coming around this table, you were inviting someone in or being invited in, and you were coming into one of the most intimate settings of their life at the time. And so Jesus does this. Now as you consider Jesus doing this, and how people viewed tax collectors and sinners, Jews, devout Jews viewed them, consider that not only were tax collectors and sinners, not only were they morally corrupt, but they were ritually unclean. In, in the Jewish mind, they were unclean. And so how could the Messiah come into contact with the ritually unclean? This is exactly what they ask. They say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And even this very question, it causes us to see on the surface, they've forgotten the mission of God. They've forgotten the Messiah and his role in the world. They've even forgotten their place in God's mission. They ask this question. 
Luke, uh, a very familiar verse in Luke 19, if you remember, Luke records Jesus as saying, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And these scribes and religious leaders, they, they failed in two ways. Number one, they failed to see themselves as lost. They didn't see themselves that way. They saw themselves as the righteous that would be vindicated. And number two, they failed to see Jesus as Savior. This explains why they constantly tried to hang Jesus up, um, uh, trap him, trick him, and ultimately they killed him because this, this man claimed to be God, and yet he ate with tax collectors and sinners. This helps us understand why these scribes protested. Jesus was violating ritual purity by entering the house of and eating with Jews who were non-observant and were flagrant violators of the moral law. Now, I was thinking about just this reality that they live with this week. And um, many of you know our, our family is kind of preparing to move to Phoenix, which is where we, we've sensed that the Lord has called us to plant a church. And we're kind of in this process of moving and selling the house and all this sort of, sort of things. And those of you who have sold a house before know that when you're selling a house, there's usually people, hopefully people, that want to come by and look at it, right, to see if they want to buy it. So you show your house to people. You don't yourself. You can't be home, obviously. You leave, and then they come. But what do you do before you have a showing? You clean your house like mad, right? <laughs> you know, you find out, okay, they're going to be here at 4 o'clock. All right, kids, you do this, you do this, you do this. You, do, and you work out a plan, and you clean your house, and you get it as spotless as you can. Now, if you're, we've done this like several times in the past month. Now, if you were to ask my kids, what does dad turn into after we clean the house? They say, oh, dad turns into a freak after we clean the house. Like, everything has to be like just right. Like, no fingerprints on anything. Like, don't touch the windows. You know, like, no mud in the house. And they're like, yeah, dad gets a little crazy after we, after we clean the house. And it's true. I, I confess it to you. But we have two dogs who just don't understand the concept of keeping a house clean. They just don't get it. And they're two large dogs. And they'll run outside and get in the mud. And, you know, the sprinklers just went on, so the grass is nice and muddy. And they'll get in the mud. And we've just done the floor. And they'll come bounding inside. And their muddy paws will come all over the clean floor. They'll play with each other. And their feet will scratch the wall. You know, that's, a, that's something people love to see when they're looking at a home. It's big scratches on the wall. It's just great. And so I'm sitting there, and this is me in those moments. I'm just like inside, I'm free. Like, dogs, what's the matter with you, right? My position in freaking out, I have a goal, and that is to keep my house clean. And I look at those dogs, and I say, you are working against my goal, right? Now, when you see these Jewish leaders these devout Jewish leaders, to these devout Jews, Jesus eating with defiled sinners is like me watching one of our dogs track mud through our nicely cleaned house. I mean, but to a far greater level, obviously. But it's like that. I'm trying to keep my house clean. And now I have somebody who's come in that's messing the whole thing up. And to these devout Jewish leaders, they were waiting with expectancy for the Messiah. They were trying to keep literally the, the house of God, the people of God, clean and pure and righteous so that when God came, they would be a people that he would look at and vindicate. 
And so these Jewish leaders, obviously, they look at what Jesus is doing and they see uh, great tension with what he's doing. And they ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And how does Jesus respond to their question? How does he answer their frustration over what he's doing? He, he quotes a well-known proverb for both Gentiles as well as Jews. He says this, and before I read it, just keep in mind, Jesus, as he says this, because of their question and the context, he's putting himself in the place of God as physician. Numerous times in the Old Testament, uh, there is this trajectory pointing forward of the, of the great physician, the good healer, that will restore Israel. And Jesus says this. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, rhetorically, those who are sick do have a need for the physician. And we know, sitting here, Jesus, he's not simply talking about physical sickness. We understand that. He, he's talking about something much deeper. Now, in this room, I know there, there, is, there is physical sickness represented. There is relational strife. There is brokenness of all sorts and all kinds that if we were to just survey ourselves, we'd have just a multitude of brokenness that we've experienced in our lives or even currently are experiencing. All of that brokenness, though, it stems from our rebellion against the Creator. It stems from us choosing our own way instead of following God and believing that His way will lead to flourishing. It stems from that. And so what Jesus is really pointing, directing their attention to is He's talking about our rebellious hearts. He's talking about those who betrayed the King. Now, Think about Levi and the role of a tax collector robbing from the people. Jesus is talking about the ones who robbed humanity through our rebellion and sin and wickedness. He's talking about all of us. And he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he expresses through his word and through his deed a, a powerful picture of the good news. See, in the, in the Greek and Roman world, especially in terms of Greek mythology, the way they thought about deity, the, the deity of the gods, was there was this separation between the Greek gods and like the material world. The idea that God would come and take on flesh was unthinkable to a, to a Greek person based on their construct of what they thought the ultimate goal of humanity was, which was to leave the body, get out of the body, cast off the shell, and go up into some spiritual, ethereal existence. So look at what Jesus is doing here and consider who he's talking to and consider the framework that they're coming at this with, that, this idea of God coming into human history, taking on flesh, of dwelling among us, getting his hands dirty, if you want to think about it that way. God's the gardener who comes down and he gets his hands dirty with us. Jesus says, I, I, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. And he's eating now with tax collectors and sinners. And this, this picture of Jesus coming around a table 
becomes a kind of a microcosm picture of the great work of God, that what has God done, but he has come to us sinners. He has, he has come to us in power and in glory. He's come to us because there is no way that we could get to him. All of our ways of trying to get to him were, were futile because of our broken, rebellious hearts. And so what did God do? He came to us. And he took on flesh and he dwelled among us. In this picture, we see Jesus eating with sinners. And what we see is that the unclean, the unclean do not defile Jesus. But rather, Jesus' holiness makes the unclean clean. And those of you who have experienced the good news coming to your heart and by faith trust in Jesus, you shout out and you cry amen to that. Jesus' presence makes the unclean clean. See, New Valley, this is, this is the only hope that you and I have today. We, we can't clean ourselves up enough to enter God's presence. And we try, when we try to work that way, we discover a, a myriad of idolatries and self-righteousness, as we talked about in the confession. But the power of the gospel is not that... Uh, We've discovered a way to get to God, but rather that God in his power and his sovereignty and his love has, has come to us, has rescued us. He's entered our present reality. He's placed himself in our midst. He's cleansed us. He's put himself in our place for our sin. And this cleansing, this washing and renewal of God, it, it happens through faith in Christ it doesn't happen because of any work that you've done to earn it. It happens through you saying, Jesus has done it. My faith, my trust is in him. This means you do the very things that the scribes were unable to do. That you confess. We're sinners. And you still confess today that we're sinners. And you also profess Christ as Savior. And this is what we do. And this is, yet again, another reminder of Jesus' work in the world, God's kingdom has come, and the role of the Messiah. I love how Mary Healy puts it. She says this, Jesus, in this moment, is recasting the people's whole understanding of the Messiah. His mission is not to vindicate those who keep the law and condemn the rest. Rather, it is to offer the healing of which all people are in need Healing from the devastation of sin. Even sins of pride and judgmentalism are among the sicknesses he came to heal. This story helps us to see with greater clarity the mission of God in our world. And New Valley, this, this is a mission that you and I have been called into. Through faith in Christ, we are called into God's mission. And so I'd ask you, how does your life reflect this grace that you've received? How does, how does your Monday and Tuesday, how does your neighborly life reflect this grace that you have received? Something for the Spirit to maybe cause your heart to ponder today in light of this, this particular story from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus looked at Levi, and this is powerful. Jesus looked at Levi and said, follow me. And in faith, Jesus looks, he looks at you, and he says, follow me.
Let's be faithful to this good news that we've received. Let's pray. God, we, we come to you recognizing that you have come to us. God, we, we come and in this, in this room as a congregation, I pray that you would help us as, as our confession and assurance does each week, even in this moment, remind us, O oh Lord, that you call sinners to yourself. I pray that we wouldn't get to a place, each one of us or even as a congregation, where when we look back on the, the good things that you've done in us, that we wouldn't look back and say, look what I've done, but we would continually and with, with great grace and love say, God, this is what you have done in me. That when we see the, the fruit of our lives that has come from your gospel, that we would continually reflect back on this God who who looked at this despicable man, despicable in the eyes of a first century devout Jew, and said, follow me. And would you remind us that in so many ways we are Levi. Would you remind us that your love and in your grace and in your good news, you've called us sinners to follow you. And God, as we do so, help us to be faithful to this good news. And I pray, oh God, that you would help us to live our lives in in the anticipation of really the great banquet when you come and make all things new. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.